You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Craig, I work with students here in the city, um, working for a charity called UCCF, the Christian Unions. But this evening we're here to look at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Before we delve into the text, before we see what treasures are in it, let's ask God for help and to speak to us through his word together this evening. Let's, let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. As we stand here on the threshold of it, may you incline our hearts towards your word, not to anything else this world has to offer us, free us from distractions this evening. May you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this evening. Unite our hearts in reverent fear of you, we ask, and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast love. And in the name of Christ our King we pray. Amen. I love John's Gospel. Uh, with UCSF just now we have um, this thing called the Gospel Project where we distribute Gospels. We encourage students to read John's Gospel with them. And I'm really excited because I think uh, it's probably the best book in the New Testament to be honest. And I'm really excited as we look at John chapter 2 this evening because we're invited to look in at a wedding. Before we look at the wedding in John chapter 2, let me uh, tell you a bit about my own wedding. Uh, myself and Amy got married here in 2013 and when we were planning our wedding, my wife Amy uh, was working as a dentist and she had the luxury of working in North Uist in the Outer Hebrides. So she was over there with, with no internet in a house, a uh, little phone signal available to her. So she enjoyed wedding planning. So a lot of it, really, to be honest, left it to me and our parents, or at least if you, if you ask me, that's so how I saw it anyway. What I mean I want to do at our wedding was to invite as many people as we can to have great banter, to have free food and drink, also people could come and relax, enjoy themselves and have a party. We wanted everything we did to adorn the gospel, to show the beauty of what it means to know Jesus. And to help us in this, we had friends and family who all had uh, different jobs that day. My parents' job was uh, stocking the bar. And they, want, they wanted everyone there to have a good time, and they wanted to make sure that they didn't run out of any drinks during the wedding. Now, I grew up in uh, Northumberland, and a lot of my mates are, are farmers and rugby players. And my wife played women's rugby at university, so her friends, likewise, were rugby players. And so the mentality of our friends was, if it's there, we'll drink it. And so my parents, knowing this, were even prepared for them but this wedding we're going to look at together, things are a little bit different here. They've got a situation with wine going on here also. But weddings like this one in John 2 are far different to ones nowadays. They're in fact a bigger deal than they are now. Apparently the average wedding costs £18,000. That's remarkable, I think. But weddings in these days lasted an entire week. The purpose is not primarily the happiness of two individuals, instead to bind the community together, to raise up the next generation. It was a celebration for all. And nowadays it's often said that the only responsibility the groom has in a wedding is to turn up on time. But this wedding, the groom would have had much more responsibility than that. For one thing, he would have been in charge of providing the wine for the entire week. 
There was no Sainsbury's to nip down the road to. Preparations were needed. Planning was essential. You can't create a vintage Merlot overnight. Planning the wine was essential. And to run out of something like that, well, it meant the party was over. It was the most important thing in the festivity. It was the only consumable that was constant. To run out of wine was not a mere breach of etiquette, but a social and psychological c- catastrophe, especially in this honor and shame culture we have here in John 2. So with this in mind, let me read our text for us. This can be found on page 1064 in the Church Bibles. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And he did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This was the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So what's going on here in this section? Well, the key to understand what it's all about is this word at the end here. The start of verse 11, this sign. Did you notice the word there? What, what do signs do? Well, they point us to something, don't they? They signify something else. They're a symbol for something else. Notice well what the purpose of the sign was. It was Jesus' first sign through which he revealed his glory. Now, why do you think it's a bit odd? Jesus making his big entrance, saying to the world who he is, laying down his calling cards, and he chooses to turn water into wine. Surely healing the sick, raising someone from the dead, something like that would have been far better. I mean, think how much ourselves, how much we put into first impressions, perhaps, for an interview. Just watch The Apprentice as they all try to impress Lord Sugar. Think about the launch of a film or an album or a brand or a product. And here Jesus is doing something similar, and I can't help but think at start that it's a bit of an anticlimax. Why would Jesus' first miracle be to keep a party going? So what does this sign tell us about him? Well, what I'd love to see tonight is three things. First, what Jesus offers us, then why do we need it, and thirdly, how will he do it? So first off, what Jesus offers us. Look down at verse 9 where we meet a chap called the Master of the Banquet. When I was a student and also at high school, I used to work at a local hotel, and I was a silver service waiter for seven years, and this guy here was my boss, this Master of the Banquet. It was his job to make the party great. It was his job to call in the guests, to announce the bride and groom, so that everything runs smoothly. But look what happens at this wedding, though. He can't fulfill his role. Because the wine the groom should have, should have provided has run out. And look what Jesus does. He turns water into wine 
and save the day. So do, do you see here what he's saying? He's saying, I am the true master of the banquet. I am the Lord of the feast. And actually more than that, he's saying, I am the true groom. And look at the wine he provides. It's the best wine. He has fulfilled all that which this groom failed to do. And so verse 11, the disciples believe in who he is, that he is the promised Messiah. You probably knew in the back of their heads, Amos chapter 9, 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I'll bring my people Israel back from exile. The disciples knew that when the Bible looks ahead to the end of time, it's described as a great wedding feast. You've got your Bible, turn to Isaiah 25. It's on page 708. Just look at verse 6, 7, 8 here, all that Jesus will do. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that unfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. And these disciples are waiting for this to happen. And here they see the first fruits of it. Just think about all that is promised here in this verse, that Jesus will prepare a great feast of rich food for all peoples of all nations, a great banquet. He will swallow up death. He will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. He does it all. Isn't this wonderful that this is what we have to look forward to? Jesus says here that I have come to bring joy, to allow you to have joy in its fullness in the future with me. One day where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. He's saying, I have come to usher in the promised kingdom of God, for I am the promised Messiah. This is what he came to do here. But why do we need this? See, whether you are a Christian or not, this evening, we know that the world isn't right. We know somewhere in the world, at any point of time, regardless of their culture, someone is doing something that we know that is inherently wrong. We open our papers, go on BBC News, and we read reports of gunmen going to schools, slaughtering children. We cry, that's wrong, that should not happen. Then as I began to write this sermon, I heard of two people I knew that had died this week. When I spoke in this text in Glasgow a few weeks ago, uh, I found out a lovely teenage boy and you died of a brain tumor. Death is wicked. It is vile. It's disgusting. And I can't really think of anything more sad than parents having to bury their own child. Death is horrendous. And we turn on the news and we hear of Poverty and pedophilia, corruption and crime, diseases and death. And we all have a longing for the world to be a better place. It's as if we all know within us that it should be better, but something has gone wrong. And to understand why we need what Jesus offers us, we really need to understand sin. We know that the brokenness we see in the world is caused by sin, that we have turned our back on God and he has handed us over to our desires. The Bible's clear on that. And we all feel the consequences of sin. And more than that, we feel the weight of our own sin. 
We really need Jesus to be the greater bridegroom we see in Isaiah 25. Because he can't fully appreciate something until you recognize your need for it. Let me tell you a story from a book I read last year called Encounters with Jesus, I think, from uh, Tim Keller. And in one chapter, he's got a story about this guy called Adolf Eichmann. And he was one of the Nazi architects of the Holocaust. And Adolf escaped after World War II to South America, where he was caught in 1960 and taken to Israel to be tried, where he was found guilty and executed. But during that trial, there was an interesting event. They had to find witnesses who saw him commit the terrible crimes against humanity. They needed to find people who saw him participate in atrocities at the death camps. One of the material witnesses was a man named Yehiniel Deneur. And when he came in to testify, he saw Eichmann in the glass booth, and immediately he broke down sobbing and fell to the ground. And there was absolute pandemonium in the courtroom, the judge hammering for order. It's all really dramatic. You can watch it, a recording of it on YouTube. And sometime later after this event, Deneau was interviewed by a journalist called Mike Wallace on the program 60 Minutes. And Wallace showed him the tape of him falling down and he asked why it happened. Was he overwhelmed? Was it painful memories perhaps? Was it hatred? And Deneau said no. And then said something quite shocking. He said that he was overcome with the realization that Eichmann was not some demon, was an ordinary human being. He went on to say, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable of doing this exactly like he. And I know this is quite an extreme, stark example. But we can choose to say the Nazis are subhuman. We aren't capable of doing what they did. But then we're left with a serious problem. To call them subhuman and not like us is in fact the very reason that led them into their unthinkable atrocities. They too thought people were subhuman. And do we really want to make the same move that they did? See, evil lurks in the heart of all quite ordinary human beings. I think I know in my experience anyway, it's easy to point at the drug, the drug addicts in the housing scheme and never see yourself doing the same. Or be aghast at the adulterous relationship you found out about and say, I can't believe that happened. I would never do that. But if we do that, then we have not seen how sinful we truly are. It would actually be more honest to say, I'm somehow the same as all those who've done terrible things. I'm made of the same human stuff. There must be something deep down in me that is capable of great cruelty and selfishness. I don't want to see it. But the thing is, though, Jesus sees it. He knows it all. And you and I are far more sinful than we could ever believe. And yet by Jesus, the one who sees us to our very core, by him you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. Just think about the offer in the gospel. What he offers us sinful people, he offers us a place at the great wedding feast you saw in Isaiah 20, where all those things will be fulfilled. Isn't that wonderful news we hold out to the nations today, to the city of Dundee? Why did Jesus come to be the greater bridegroom? Why do we need it? Because the world isn't right. Because we aren't right. So how is he going to do this? It all sounds a bit strange. But notice what all this in John 2 is taking place. It's at a wedding, isn't it? 
See, this young couple is about to bring shame and humiliation upon their family, but Jesus saves them from this and instead brings them joy. Let's get to the heart of the narrative here in the text. Jesus' mother Mary tells him the party is out of wine. Now Mary may not know exactly who Jesus is at this point, but she knows he's an ordinary. How could she possibly have forgotten all that happened at his birth? She tells him no wine. He replies, woman, why do you involve me? It's a bit harsh, Jesus, isn't it? That's how it comes across to us, but its meaning's lost in our translation. Though it is a bit cold for a gathering such as this. But what's going on here, though? Why does it come across that Jesus is, is in a bit of a mood here? Is he in a bit of a grump? Well, reading the other Gospels, he isn't easily irritated, even at the point of being tortured unto death. He does not speak a harsh word. So something must be weighing on him heavily. Look at what he says next in the text. My hour has not yet come. As you read through John's Gospel, you see Jesus talks about this hour. And it always refers to his death. The hour is the moment he dies on the cross. So knowing that, let's put that into what's being said here. Mary says, oh no, what a disaster, Jesus. They've run out of wine. And Jesus replies, why are you telling me this? I'm not yet ready to die. So why does Jesus connect providing wine with his death? Well, as we've seen, the whole of history is heading towards a wedding. And it's the wedding to end all weddings, the feast to end all feasts. And Jesus there is the great bridegroom. Think of the best wedding that you've ever been to before. That is but a mere glimmer of a candle, an echo, a shadow on the wall of the cosmic future reality of the great wedding feast to come. And here in a place called Cana 2,000 years ago, Jesus was looking ahead to that wedding and thinking about how as the bridegroom, he needed to provide the wine for all of those who were to come. But of course, to come to this wedding, you have to be perfect. You have to be a friend of God. He is holy. You can't enter his presence sinful. You can't have any shame. You need to be perfect. And as we saw, that isn't us. But look down at verses 6 and 7. Notice how Jesus here goes about removing shame and bringing joy to this wedding. By filling up jars which would have been used for ceremonial washing. Now, why does John say that? Why doesn't John just say, by filling up some jars? Well, I think it's quite important. In Old Testament Judaism, it contained various different types of visual acts of cleansing, which are all designed to show our spiritual need, that we need to cleanse, we aren't perfect, that we're sinful. And these jars are part of that system. But at the very core of the sacrificial system was God. The tabernacle, the temple, the presence of God, always at the center And he wanted to be with his people and his people with him. Because he is holy and we are sinful, the only way people could be near him was to have something else take the punishment for their sin. Something else was to die in your place that you could enjoy the blessings from God. Now I'm not sure there's anything in this, but remember God's first revelation of himself to the Egyptians in judgment in the book of Exodus, where I see Moses, the one through whom God gave the law, turning water into blood. And here we have Jesus in the New Testament, the one who came to fulfill the law, his first miracle we see here, not turning water into blood, but water into wine. Because Jesus is the one who will shed his blood for us and to provide the wine for the wedding feast to come. Jesus saying here, you don't need those ceremonial jars anymore. I will cleanse you through my blood. 
I will die so that you can live. Through my blood, I'll provide the wine for the wedding to come. See, this is why I think Jesus responds to his mother as he does. And think about how good this news is then, that if Jesus Christ is the one he says he is, the creator of the universe, come in the flesh, then what we really have in his death on the cross is God himself coming to earth and paying the ultimate price for our sin with his own life. He does not demand us to pay, but rather he pays it in our place. I mean, is that not outrageous when you think about it? That we, the sinful people, the creator God, comes and dies in our place. Does that not motivate us to tell others about, about him? Is that not the best news that you've ever heard? And this is what we see splattered throughout great pieces of literature and film. Self-giving, sacrificial love. And even in literature and film that isn't good, think even of the Disney film Frozen. Now bear with me on this year. But towards the end of the film where Princess Anna is out in the frozen fjord and Kristoff, her true love, is chasing towards her and they are set to kiss and Princess Anna will be free from the curse that is upon her. But then she sees her sister, Queen Elsa, about to be killed by the evil Prince Hans and she runs over and takes the blade of the sword for her, willing to die so her sister may live. And then what happens Everyone who's watching the film, they sit in silence at the beautiful act of sacrifice. Because there is no greater heart-melting joy than to know someone has willingly sacrificed something for you. See, it resonates with us because we want someone to do that for us. We want to believe that someone would die for us in our place. And that is what we have in the person of Jesus Christ. He did not come to tell us how to save ourselves. He came to save us himself. He left eternal joy to come and die a shameful death, drinking our cup of shame on the cross so we can forever drink his cup of joy at that great wedding feast to come. See, Jesus is the greater bridegroom, and we are invited to the best wedding that there will ever be. We are not invited only as a guest, but as the bride. See, the words that are at the heart of the marriage ceremony are deeply profound. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. When Amy and I got married, I was pretty skinned, but Amy had been working as a dentist for a few years, and we joked about this line. Amy saying, all that I have, I share with you. My car, my savings, my income. And I responded, all that I have, I share with you. My debt, my student loan repayments. And it seems funny, doesn't it, thinking about it like that? actually this is at the very heart of the Christian hope. Jesus says to us, all that I am I give to you. All that I am I share with you. My part in God's family, my beauty, my truth, my goodness, my joy, my righteousness. And we respond, all that I am I give to you. All that I have I share with you. My guilt, my pain, my judgment, my sin, my ugliness. And think what happens in a marriage, two become one, there's a new life, a new start, a new identity, a new name for the bride. Think of what that means when you trust in Jesus, you receive his identity and name. Your life is hidden in him. Yes, that great feast is to come, but if you're a Christian, your life now is hidden in him. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing this sermon yesterday, I felt the weight of my sin, I didn't want to open my Bible 
I had no delight in Jesus. I didn't want to sit at my desk and, and start looking at this text. And yet I'm so glad I did. Isn't it a wonder that we know Lord Jesus Christ as we do? When we come to him, we feel our shame removed. We find a greater joy in him. We look at the cross and see him drinking our sorrow so we may have joy. Next time you're at a wedding uh, and the bride walks into the room, try to do something a bit different next time. Temptation is we all walk, uh, so we all look at the bride coming in. But said, look at the bridegroom. See his delight on his face. And think of that great wedding feast to come. Where Jesus Christ stands at the front and delights his bride. Can you imagine that moment when you stand before him? He who died for you, the righteous one for the unrighteous. Can you imagine that moment where you stand before he who flung stars into space and he delights in you? I mean, have you ever wondered why so many stories end with they got married and lived happily ever after? Because they're shadows of the great story, the great marriage of Christ and the church. Jesus Christ is the greater bridegroom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, it is a wonder that we can come to you in prayer. That you would look at us, wretched sinners, and choose to die on the cross for us. What wonderful news this is for us this evening. And as we think ahead to the missions conference coming up, what wonderful news it is that we have to hold out to the nations. That you are the greater bridegroom, that there will be that day. There will be that great wedding feast that you will have us there. Thank you that we've got a gospel to proclaim. And so give us opportunities this week, we ask, to share this wonderful news with those who we meet. May you empower us by the Holy Spirit to do so. May you use our weak words for their joy and their salvation in you. We ask all these things before our Father in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, 
please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.